Welcome to Shades of ABA with Adrian and Tiana. And we are back to our regular scheduled programming. However, you know that we just love to release when we release. Um, but we will get back to some type of regular schedule, maybe. <laughs> Hopefully. We'll see. You know, life, things, all right. things. So we're trying, guys. We're trying. Right, right. Um, but today we are here and um, we are present with the wonderful Gemma and Gabrielle from Twice Consulting. Hi, How everybody. are you guys? We're doing well. Good, thanks. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And you guys are currently in Savannah, Georgia. Yes, Soaking up all that heat and humidity. It is so <laughs> hot. It is so, so hot. You need to change of clothes just to walk okay. to the park. Yeah. I feel like that's what you experienced down in Texas with like. Yes, um, it is. It's um, consistent today. It stormed yesterday, all day, and a little bit today. So it's cooler, but it's been in the 100 degrees, like 100, 104 consistently. Gosh, not yes. fun. It's not quite that hot, but the humidity <laughs> here is 60% plus. And yeah. you know how it'll tell you it's 97 degrees, feels like 115. That's yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's better than snow, though. It's better than having snow. Yes. yes. That is what I'm trying to compare all the heat to. Like, well, it could be 12 <laughs> inches of snow right now. Did you experience the snowstorm this year in Texas? Yes, I did. Um, and it was a shit show. Um, I just, people here, I'm not originally from Texas. People here cannot drive at all. It's pretty miserable when the roads are dry. So when the storm happened, I completely understood how that very unfortunate pile, how the many unfortunate pileups occurred. Because people are like, I rule the world, I rule rule the road, so we could just keep going. No, you can't. Ice is a real thing; like it's dangerous. So I kind of just stayed at home. Like all of my clients canceled, so I didn't have to worry about anything, and just that was it. That happened in Georgia, like. Two or three years ago, it was a freak snowstorm. No one had any salt trucks or, you know, plows. And they had on our like four lane highway going to Atlanta, miles of cars backed up where people just got out of their vehicle and left it on the highway and like knocked on people's doors to sleep in their homes. I know of multiple people that did that because when you have a mile of vehicles that are empty in front of you in a parking lot on the highway, what do you do? Wow. I don't know if I would have like brought somebody in. Yeah. Because your trust has to be really high. Right. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't think that would, would fly. After it melted, it took days to like clear the vehicles. And they kept saying, if you're not backing your vehicle by X date, you're getting towed. But people were like, how do I get back to it? I can't drive to it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. That makes sense. 
<laughs> well, we will go ahead and, and get into some introductions. Um, and why do we have Gabrielle and Gemma on our show today? Um, we are going to be talking about their consulting company that works with different organizations and individuals and puts on amazing CEE trainings as well um, in relations to, they have a lot of different sub-departments, but particularly their diversity, equity, and inclusion department. So can you tell our audience a little bit about who you guys are and uh, the work that you guys do and things like that? Sure. So um, this is Gabriella talking, and then we've got Gemma over here. Uh, we'll try and say who it is that's talking, because what we found is our voices are almost identical on recordings. Um, so, and when we're talking, we don't hear that about each other. Her Gemma's voice sounds completely different to me when she's talking to me. But if she leaves me a voicemail, I'm like, holy crap, that's me talking to myself, um, like hearing it back. So this is Gabrielle. Um, I am a BCBA and a licensed behavior analyst, uh, been in the field of behavior analysis probably for about 15 years, uh, You mostly working in the traditional sense with autistic clients um, and providing services. That way, I've worked in a lot of um, a lot of different states, and I've lived abroad. I worked in West Africa for two years. I worked in Malta in Europe for two years. Um, so I've done a lot of different work um, over the last 15 years, but a good amount of that work, I've done a lot of consulting with my twin sister, Gemma, um, who I'll let her introduce herself, but she's a doctor of public health. Um, and has a really great perspective on a lot of different pieces that don't necessarily shine through for behavior analysts. Um, so I'm sure we'll get into like why Twice Consulting kind of became what it was and where that started. Um, but what we do is we work together on all of our projects and kind of share a lot of the labor and knowledge that goes into these different pieces. So we have a lot of different subcategories that you mentioned. Um, our biggest one that's definitely our labor of love and our most favorite um, work to do is in the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, so we do mentorship, we've done consulting, um, we've developed some asynchronous trainings for companies to use, and it's all been the both of us working together. Um, I also work with transgender and autistic clients specifically. Um, we do a lot of work with the LGBTQAA plus community. Um, and so we, we do a lot of this together and we kind of work to complement each other. Um, I'll let Gemma talk about what her background is, uh, cause it's pretty diverse. Um, and it definitely benefits a lot of the work that we do. Uh, so this is Gemma and as Gabrielle already mentioned, I'm a, I am a doctor of public health, but I do have a, uh, a lot of kind of um, different credentialing that makes my perspective unique in how we collaborate. So um, my undergraduate degree is in exercise science and athletic training. Um, so I am a certified and licensed athletic trainer. So, you know, watching the Olympics has just been fantastic for me, as well as infuriating watching how Simone Biles is being treated and knowing, um, you know, for, that we're banding ethnic hair, swim caps and 
Um, you know, this is this is a, a we live in a nation where girls can be sent home from school for their bra strap showing, but they're fined in the Olympics for wearing shorts instead of bikini bottoms. Isn't um, that wild? Ain't that wild? So mm-hmm. crazy. So anyway, um, you know, but me as an athletic trainer, I'm sitting there to completely getting what Simone Biles is going through with proprioception, which is essentially your body knowing where it is in space um, and how easy it is for you to disconnect emotionally and cognitively and how dangerous that could be. So personally, I'm very proud of her for um, pulling out. I'm sure that wasn't an easy decision, but it was a very smart decision. And I'm on the board of um, the Society for Public Health Education in Georgia, and we made sure that we complimented her in our newsletter um, because of how much she's valuing emotional uh, and mental well-being because it matters just as much as physical health. But um, anyway, so my... um, undergrad is exercise science and athletic training. And I'm, I have about 15, 16 fitness and wellness credentialing. Um, so I'm a certified personal trainer, um, USA weightlifting. I have multiple group fitness certifications, including kickboxing, cycling, primary group fitness. Um, I'm a 200 hour yoga, um, instructor through yoga Alliance. Um, I am an instructor for CPR and, uh, AED. So I teach in, um, I certify people in that. Um, let's see. I'm also a, a certified, um, diversity executive. Um, and I completed a, uh, fellowship with the institution that I work for, a year-long fellowship with their Office of Inclusive Excellence um, as an Inclusive Excellence Fellow. My day job um, is a um, Director of Student Wellness and Health Promotion for a mid-sized institution in the Southeast. Um, and, and I wish that my day job was truly Twice Consulting Services, and hopefully one day it will be. Um, have I missed anything about anything big about what I do? Um, so I think another important piece is your work um, with rape crisis centers. Okay. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> yes, I am a certified victims advocate. I've been a certified victims advocate for about seven years, uh, but I'm also the vice president of the board of directors for a rape crisis center in Savannah. Um, so I do a lot of work in particular with trauma survivors. Um, so yes, I have multiple different hats, but that's the fun thing about public health is, um, you, public health literally intersects everything. And if folks aren't appreciative of public health after March, 2020 until now, I don't know if you ever will be, um, (laughs) (laughs) but it's been a wild and really interesting year. I love how you guys have taken all of the many hats that you're wearing because a lot of times people um, people struggle with like taking all their hats and making it work from them for them and just looking at all of the different opportunities and resources that you guys have for on twice on your website uh, for twice consulting. It is I I was reading through and I'm like, how is this? What what do they do? What do they not do? How how do we work all of these things together? And to hear both of you share all of your experiences, it really is amazing how it has translated into Twice Consulting. So 
Hats off to you guys with all your mini things. It's been, it was, and you know, is COVID I think was one of the blessings that it did give us was kind of the inspiration, the time to actually make twice consulting something Um, because it's been, it's TCS has been a thing since the womb. Um, But let's say that, it was a time to, and we've literally been doing it our whole lives, mm-hmm. just kind of complementing each other in different senses, having these different strengths and using those. But then, you know, that opportunity kind of came where we were like, let's actually make it a thing and let's make a website and let's do it. And we, it started with continuing education and then it just kind of, um, snowballed from there where um we the first few CEs that we did was COVID-19 related and ABA safety um and just a because I was constantly calling Gemma and being like what do I do about this what do I do about this what do I do about this and I and nobody really knows that except for public health professionals um so it kind of started there and then there was a lot of consulting that went in there and social justice has always been the center of everything that we've done. Um, So a big piece of looking at when we first started with COVID-19 is how is this affecting Black Americans and Black families and the disproportionality of COVID-19 and the accessibility for telehealth and all these different facets and pieces that it really needs to be the center of every conversation. And then from there, we just kind of branched out to these different areas. Um, Health and wellness has always been something that Gemma and I have both done. I've always done it in the behavior analysis sense of supporting individuals, almost creating BIPs for fitness um, and wellness and meeting your goals and what behaviors do you need to engage in? How do you reinforce those behaviors? Um, And Gemma knows how to recommend what someone should do to greet their meet their goals, what the behaviors are. Um, so it was a kind of a good, it's a really good piece to marry together where you've got somebody who can support you where it's, okay, an expert tells me I have to do X, Y, and Z, but I don't do X, Y, and Z, which is where I would come in, um, is, well, why not? And you want to. Yes. <laughs> I see uh, it. I see it. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> Again, centering social justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion, because there is a, it's exercise prescription is from this homophobic, transphobic, binary lens. Um, It's very, very racist in a lot of different areas. Um, So it's also about unpacking those pieces. So one of the things is if you want these other things, from us, you're also going to be getting a lot of that DEI as well, because everything that we do is founded in that and centers that. Yeah, so public health is, well, I should say successful public health work is rooted in social justice, uh, because what essentially we're doing, and it's so funny, I'm having this conversation because I um, I, I had told um, you all right before we started recording that it was my first day back on campus with my staff. My student staff is back. And then on um, Wednesday, the students start moving back in. So it's my my paid employees are are on campus now. And I was telling them, um, you know, that successful public health work is rooted in social justice, that we're not here to just um, it doesn't make sense. And it's a waste of resources to 
treat a person for their illness if you're not going to fix the reason why they're sick in the first place. Um, so that's really what public health does. It's a population health perspective of looking at barriers and facilitators um, for health. Uh, and it, dress it, it addresses social determinants of health. So that's really, I'll, I'll get on my soapbox about in particular um, fitness, the fitness industry, because I feel I have a right to, I have, you know, 17 fitness and wellness credentials. I have two degrees in it and um, we're problematic in multiple ways. As Gabriella said, it's gendered, it's racist, and um, it boils down to the idea of energy in, energy out is energy expenditure, right? So it sends this message to folks that if you're overweight, you're lazy, instead of realizing there are multiple reasons why people make the behavior choices that they do and systematically why they're forced to make those choices or why they aren't given a choice, right? They could be survivors of trauma or not have a safe place to exercise or not feel included in spaces and invited into spaces in order um, to participate in different behaviors. So um, that's really what we do. Um, we understand the difference between access and available, right? So I always use the example of voter suppression when I unpack this, which is just because something's available doesn't mean it's accessible to all people. Um, you know, look okay, at Texas. Yeah. Hello, Texas. Yeah. Not looking at anybody in particular. <laughs> right. I mean, like, they're only have... trying to rewrite history with what they're teaching in schools. So. Oh, right. They can't even, uh, mm -hmm. they, they have no idea what critical race theory is, but they just know it's bad. Um, or they think it's bad. Um, but yeah, I mean, like we have early voting 10 AM to 4 PM. Who can that, who does that exclude? Right. If you're looking in an equity lens, um, single parents, no trans people without transportation, rural areas that don't even have public hourly employees, hourly employees, people without childcare. Um, you know, the list goes on and on. So just because something's available doesn't mean it's accessible. And I had this conversation even with COVID vaccines, where I was like, okay, I know you have a scheduled clinic, but you schedule them online. So you got to assume somebody has the technology ability. They have a phone, they can afford a phone, or they have access to the technology to schedule it. Then you're going to give them an appointment time and expect them to be on time. What makes more sense? Maybe a walk-up clinic would make more sense. Um, so it's looking at things like looking at things through an equity lens, essentially. I love the marriage that you guys have had because with the public health and looking at it from a lens of accessibility versus availability throughout all, all the things, then you have the BCBA side that then how do we change the behavior of the people? Like, okay, we now know here's the issue, but what is the exact plan of implementation of that? And then leading with the social justice lens, right? Yeah. I, I honestly think that more BCBAs, especially people have shown their asses over mm -hmm. the last year and some change, right? They, sh I think it's really beneficial for a public health degree. Um, Gemma, my undergrad is in exercise science kinesiology. And so when I was looking at grad school programs and things like that, I initially was looking at public health and like a master's in public health to look at just the disparities with black individuals and diabetes 
Mm-hmm. Um, I had done like a research project in undergrad. So it's definitely something that still stays on my mind of like, okay, how can we incorporate this in ABA, mm-hmm. especially as we are looking, um, have more of a focus on equity and inclusion and diversity and doing it the right way. And I really think um, one of the really exciting reasons why I wanted to guys have you guys on the show is you guys are doing the work. Um, and you guys have been doing the work for years, right? So you're not just two women who are just popping up on the scene and, and two white women at that popping up on the scene, you know, and I've seen your Instagram and your Facebook posts and everything about Banff, Gabrielle. And so I really do want people to know that you can be a, a true advocate, um, I, I, I remember when I started using the word allyship and then I was like, no, bitch, you're on like this performative surface level with that word. Like allyship doesn't exist. It's either about it or you're not, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I really do appreciate just flowers for a second, how you two have shown up as white women in that space. And you guys do do put on, um, I've seen like your health and fitness um, CEUs and, and education and even taking that from a lens of what is inclusion and equity and diversity look like in the health and fitness and wellness realm, um, whether that's through a public health or the ABA side within that. So kudos to you guys really. Um, And I think that kind of dives into our question. Like you guys have been doing this work for years and how do you guys, you know, realizing you're two white women showing up in this space and there are people who will just look at you and write you off in this space. Right. Um, so how do you guys overcome that or have overcome that in the past? So I think that's a super important question. Also, thank you for the flowers. We always appreciate them, never expect them, but whenever they come, we're like, yes, I will put those in water and water those flowers. Um, but that's a, I think that's a really, it's a really good question. And I think at certain points in time, we probably both had a lot of imposter syndrome about some of the topics, some of the things that we did want to take on. Um, ultimately I think that it comes more so from this internal understanding that people that are writing us off, that is a good thing when they initially see us, because we do hold a shit ton of privilege when we walk into spaces. Um, Gemma tacks it really well. When you talk, I'm going to let you tact our privilege. Go ahead and tact our privilege. Okay. So, um, you know, we, we always make sure that we tack our privilege in uh, pretty much every DEI discussion we have or um, um, CE that we're doing, which is essentially we're white women. Um, We hold a lot of privilege for that. I, I have a doctor of public health, right? And when I even make appointments for uh, in a physician's office or I'm getting my annual pap smear. I put my name down as Dr. Gemma Spuriton because I know I'm going to be treated differently because I have a, a doctorate. So there's the, the educational component that puts me in a privileged space. 
Um, I, as a white woman, don't have to um, consider interactions with the police in the same way that I know people of color do, and in particular, the Black community does. I know that um, if if I have a child and um, if I will never understand truly um, what parents go through of children of color, especially because I'm not a parent, uh, a person of color. I um, know that I may worry about, um, you know, them going going out in spaces and driving and getting in an accident, but I'm not going to worry about them getting pulled over by the police and having a deadly interaction. Um, I am physically, uh, I don't have any physical disability, so I'm able to drive up park in a parking spot, not have to worry about getting out of the um, vehicle and making sure that, um, you know, it's wheelchair accessible and, and whatnot. I, um, uh, I use this example. Um, I, I currently have a grant where I'm getting um, uh, sustainable menstrual products available to students on campus. Um, so menstrual cups and sustainable pads. And I was explaining this to a group of professionals where I was like, well, yeah, I grew up with a single parent home and uh, I understand what it was like to have to buy the really uncomfortable cardboard applicator tampon in order for me to still afford food that month. But I, but what I didn't have to worry about was going into a bathroom and wondering if I was safe. But that's what a black trans person has to worry about. A trans male has to worry about. In particular, a black trans male's life expectancy is 35 years old. So they're not also having to, they're also having to manage how do I afford hormone replacement therapy, menstrual products and food all in the same month. Um, so it, we hold a lot of privilege, Gabrielle and I, um, and we, it's important to recognize that so that we, when you look at things through an equity lens, and I think that makes you more authentic when you're like, yeah, I have the, I hold these privileges, but I also know that your lived experience is different and I can still care about it. And I can still um, utilize my privilege, which sits me closer to power in order to affect change. Um, So, yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, tacting that initially is really important, but um, I think we've both kind of gotten to this stage in our work where if we are immediately written off, it's almost something that is, we're excited about that. Because really, it would be great for us to not have to do this work. Um, It would really be fantastic for this work to come from people of color, to come from Black women, to come from Black trans folks, and it be heard and accepted in the, in, you know, that's, that's the goal. That's where we want it to be. So I think that, and we get a lot of these questions when we do a lot of the consultation, it's, well, I want to do this, but I don't want to look like I'm virtue signaling, right? Like, I don't want to look like I'm being performative. I don't want to be perceived as that. And here's the thing. If you're going to walk the walk and talk the talk, that will show for the people who are doing the work. And here's the thing about faking the funk. We talk about this a lot. You can only fake the funk for so long around the people that know what it is that you should and what you should be doing and what you should know. There's only so much of that that you can fake until people start seeing the inauthenticness. Um, And here's the thing about 
the 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 work that we're doing is that we need to start holding everyone accountable. Um, we're at the point where it's like, I don't care whose Facebook it is and whose comment it is that I'm dropping on. I don't care where you sit in the field or what power or privilege you're holding at this point. We need to start tacting what's happening. We need to start tacting whether or not this is authentic, whether or not we're doing the work. We need to stop celebrating things that aren't actually making any effective change. I'm like, let's stop celebrating people that are saying things in private when you have the platform to say it in public. Let's start holding some accountability when it comes to that. And I think that what Gemma and I also try to do is that we model if we're ever given any sort of feedback like that, that we take it as a gift. Um, that any, I know that when I give my time, my energy or, or my knowledge to someone, um, I'm giving it in good faith, hoping that that person will take it and, and love it and learn it and work through it. Um, I recognize through a learning history that that's not always the case, but it hasn't really changed the way that I interact, um, because I have much, many more spoons than the average person with a lot more marginalizations to do that. So, you know, it's if there's an immediate write-off or just this question about who are these women and why like these cis white women coming in that, you know, are are talking about these topics, um, they're good questions to have and they're questions that we should be asking. Um, Because ultimately, I always say, if you have an issue or you want to hide something, then there's got to be something wrong with that. Um, so there's this, I, you know, we talk about these SDs that you put out there. So it's like putting your pronouns in your name and putting them on your Facebook page or making sure that you, um, are using the spelling women with maybe an X, um, to kind of signal that you're including trans women or whatever it is that you're doing. And there's different facets. There's different schools of thoughts to whether or not that's inclusive or whether or not that's, um, virtue singling. What I always say is, you know, it's, it comes down to the work that you're doing. And if you're going to talk the talk and walk the walk, that will show. Um, so it's, and it's not about you. It's about the work that you're doing and it's about the impact. Um, and I'll add that any of our ideas didn't like, wasn't born out of Gabrielle and Gemma, right? Like this work has been ongoing for years and years and years and is older than we are. So we also make and belongs sure, to black women, right? Really, so we yeah. make sure that we give credit to where that's due. Kimberly Crenshaw Williams, you're not going to hear us talk about intersectionality without giving her credit and without talking about her as, um, you know, a founder, founding critical race theorist and and what her work meant with regard to law and um, access for women, uh, in particular, black women. Um, so, you know, we'll say that. And also, I think a little bit of it stems from people thinking privilege is a bad thing um, or having privilege is something you need to apologize for or feel bad about. And we always need to unpack what that what privilege is, which is essentially what everybody should have. I'm a heterosexual cisgender female, which means I identify as the gender in which I was assigned at birth and I'm attracted to um, uh, male. So when I go out with my partner, I can show affection without having to worry for my safety. That's something that's a privilege that everyone should have. Privilege is not a pizza with limited slices to go around. 
Um, you know, so it, I think it's a matter of that is a conversation we often have is trying to explain what privilege actually is, because it's such an uncomfortable topic for people and it doesn't need to be and it shouldn't be. And I think it, it has a lot to do with like pri- seeing privilege as shame and and guilt almost and like oh let me hide my privilege but there is certain privilege that you just can't hide for example like you said you know we are I am not disabled I have both my legs are functioning both my arms are functioning my eyes are functioning I can drive and come and go as I please I can't hide that privilege but what I can do is be mindful of that privilege so the power and the very little power that I have as a Black woman um, that I do have, I can make sure that we are, you know, thinking of accessibility when it comes to disability. Um, and particularly, you know, when we have our BABA conference in person, that is something that we are looking at as to where the bathrooms are. Because there are large organizations and conferences that had that, that handicapped bathroom two miles away and they can't even go see a session. Mm-hmm. And that's really, I love that you're saying that too, because what's interesting is um, Gemma and Camille Morgan, Cami Morgan and Amber Clayton, um, we're creating this like new resource that we're going to be putting out pretty soon. We're kind of in the process of um, putting it together now, but um, we're trying to make a rubric for conferences. Um, and essentially it's a kind of a self-assessment of the conference of different things to consider. So like you just said, people that are planning a conference that can easily walk to the bathroom and use any stall and don't have to think twice about which bathroom you're going into might not occur to them that they there are other people that are going to be in your space that will need to consider that. Um, There are people who are choosing locations for a conference without considering whether or not a new bathroom bill was just introduced. And folks flying in are not going to be able to pee in the airport or off the conference area, right? So um, we're kind of putting together this self-assessment rubric that we want to throw out there. There are checklists that already exist. So it's not like we're necessarily reinventing the wheel. Um, But Our goal, though, is to have a score for people to start, one, requesting when you sign up for a conference before you do that, what's your score? Um, Like, where are you falling? Possibly having conferences publish that first and really encouraging people to let's, you know, behavior analysis, right? Like, let's reinforce and start putting our money towards the locations that are centering this. Um, And a lot of the questions are going to focus on the people who are applying, do you have questions about, regardless of the topic, how you center social justice? How does that, how is that incorporated? Because I'm sure we've all been in different CEs where that's not even a breath of discussion. Um, so it's like, how are you centering that and really trying to encourage people to, one, ask about this score send it to the locations, ask the people who are making these, you know, creating these conferences, putting those together. Um, And we'll likely have many, many edits on that once we kind of get around to it. We also have a lot of different contacts and people with different identities from other fields as well that we consult with through TCS. Um, So we work with other people in public health. We work with social workers. We've all all different um, 
these other fields that there's so much to benefit from. We say constantly in behavior analysis that you have to consult, right? You need mentorship. But I feel like we don't enforce enough that that doesn't always have to be another behavior analyst. Um, you, you could get a lot out of talking to a social worker. You could get a lot out of um, talking to somebody from another profession that isn't behavior analysis. Um, so that's one of the projects that we're kind of cooking up pretty soon and excited about. But it was a great segue where you're like, I'm thinking about this as I plan a conference because I need to be aware of this privilege that I hold and recognize not everyone has it. So what do I have in my power to make sure that I can kind of support the people who don't have a privilege in that area? So I love that you uh, that you just stated the fact of like, behavior analysts don't have to work with other behavior analysts. And like, I love that on your website, you have that point of teamwork. Reading specifically from the website, clinicians are better together. We believe that engaging the very best of our fields results in well-rounded practitioners. I think that more often than not, a lot of behavior analysts come with this mindset of, I know everything. You know, we don't have to collaborate with other people. And whether it is other practitioners within other fields or just the parents or the individuals that we're working in servancy that it's, I know it all. And to, I'm, I love just coming into contact with individuals who are like encompassing like this, the teamwork makes the dream work mentality. Um, I do kind of want to just take it back just a little bit um, with regard to Adrian's initial question as to how do you guys, deal with the people who kind of just who who want to fight the fight the concept and the thought that you guys are being authentic right so we've stated and we shared that twice and saw team was kind of born within COVID but you guys have been doing the work when did that specifically do you have a moment when that specific process of like being inclusive within DEI like was there for you guys or any specific events that just kind of triggered and made you realize that you know there this is a problem within your own fields and within your own work um but also coming together so I would say that um to answer the question about kind of it, where like bringing DEI and centering that piece, I would say that that's probably from the very beginning. Um, so that was a piece where when we were putting our values together and we sat down and said, let's make our company values, um, intersectionality, founded in social justice, That those were the two that we were like absolutely 100%. Um, so it wasn't a situation where we have a company and then you realize that you're lacking in these values and you kind of have to backtrack. It was from the very beginning, that was a piece. And I think that that comes in from wanting to have centering these pieces in our own individual journeys from many years in, in the past um, and working in the area of activism and those kinds of things. Um, so with regards to your question about people who kind of want to fight us, um, I think that it comes down to context um, because we do do a lot of work where you are, are brought in. And I, I mean, we've had different consultations where we have a, a warning the day before 
with the director calls us and says, you're basically presenting to the KKK tomorrow. That context and how you approach that kind of training is much different than maybe finding someone who is a Black American saying to you, why are you doing this work? Um, So I'm not sure which question you're asking or if you're asking both. Um, We're happy to answer both. Um, Both. Both. Okay. Um, So I would say that the when we're told this is the, you know, the training that we want you to do and you're basically presenting to the KKK, usually what happens is they call us in because there's a problem. Um, And so rarely are we brought in as an antecedent strategy, unfortunately. Um, Usually we are a reactive support. Um, And one of the things that Gemma and I do do when we're called in for that is we are looking at things from a systems level. That's a big piece of Gemma's work um, is that you can't just call us in and ask us to talk to, let's say it's ABA, to your RBTs and make absolutely no changes to your system. Um, Do not have any training or support set up for your HR departments, the people who are hiring, the billings, all of these pieces. So if you want us, There are some other things that you have to consider, Um, and it it is just a Band-Aid if you're going to have us come in and talk to, let's say, the RBTs, right? Like, there's a much different system at place. So we also have this conversation with folks prior to um, because we do not want to be a performative solution to a systemic problem. Um, So that's one thing um, is that we look at that from a systems level and we talk about, do you need mentorship and coaching at the leadership level in addition to these other trainings? Um, I would say that a good majority of people that reach out to us um, because they do know that they will have pushback because of the learning history of the folks who work with them want us because we are cisgendered females who are white. Um, And I think that they want that because it's potentially going, I think that more palatable. Yeah, it's more palatable. Exactly. Especially on, you know, we, when we tapped our privilege, we also say that, you know, we are aesthetically pleasing based on the appearance ideal, right? Like we're, we're within, we meet the attractive. Yeah. We meet that standard. Right. So there's all of those factors are part of our privilege, but also reasons why people are reaching out to us. Um, So it's a little bit more palatable there. Um, What we do do um, when we have those trainings and we appreciate being warned ahead of time to expect this, um, you know, we really make sure that we focus a lot on explaining this, these basic concepts um, of like what privilege is, why it's not offensive, really talking about it in a more um, kind of Defining it. Defining it, exactly. And a really rounded approach of making sure that we understand that most people will go, oh, yeah, you know, I don't need a handicapped parking spot, Um, you know, and it's utilizing those pieces, uh, making sure that we're really doing that. The other piece that Gemma and I also really want to make sure that we do when we're doing this work is um, that we don't fall into the system of speaking to, to the white white supremacist narrative to the white person at the expense of the black colleagues in the room. Um, So there's kind of this balance that we really try and strike where we're also, you know, first of all, anyone who wants to speak, if you're a person of color, we absolutely appreciate it. You know, feel free to to tell us to stop if you want to share something. At the same time, we're also recognizing that you're basically 
your colleagues are basically the KKK, as explained to us by your director the day before. Um, So whether or not you're actually going to want to be participating, I would say probably not. Um, So there's this piece where we... Question. (laughs) Do you guys frame it like that? Like with those words? In the in the group to them, like we know you're the KKK. (laughs) Normally, no, No. because it's an automatic defensiveness. And literally the worst thing to call a racist is racist Mm -hmm. Uh, or even say your behavior is racist. Um, We try to strike the balance of a call in versus a call out. Yeah. However, Sometimes, no matter what way you try to frame something, it is always going to sound like a call out to someone who is not ready to hear it or is not not ready to process it or hasn't done any of their own work. Yeah. So there is a there's this (laughs) understanding that we definitely take in is that there is no palatable way to talk about racism to a racist. Uh, That's literally just the reality of that. So when we are working on trying to bring in this systemic change and looking at, um, you know, really making sure what I'm constantly trying to do is weigh the balance of is this, is there anything that's causing harm in this moment to the black folks in this room to the other marginalized folks in this room? At, like at their expense in order to educate white people. And we definitely draw the line there. Um, so we want to make sure that we're really, really aware of that piece. Um, something that Gemma and I also do is that we are, a lot of those trainings, we make them extremely interactive. Um, I've been doing parent trainings and staff trainings probably most of my career that's been a big focus of the work that I've been doing. So, and Gemma and I are both pretty comfortable with silence until someone is ready to answer. We do a lot of work that requires people to interact, to speak. Um, So we typically will ask people to not necessarily have their cameras on, but unmute and speak on those. We do offer a a warning for this, usually weeks in advance when this is scheduled, because we are aware of different um, social anxieties and being aware of those kinds of things. But we keep things very, very specific in terms of making sure that we have these um, mutual agreements before we start. We talk about what's expected and what's not. Um, We tact immediately, usually what's on the white people's mind of this will be a safe space, right? For me to say what I want and you not think I'm a racist. Actually, no, it's not a safe space. It's a brave space. And we go into like a long discussion about what does that mean? Because there are very few safe spaces for black people. There are a few spaces for the black colleagues in your room that they would call safe. Um, So we're going to call this a brave space where we're going to hope that we can be brave enough to be wrong. Um, You know, we talk about wanting to make sure that one of our mutual agreements is reserve your right to change your mind, be open to new information that you're presented with. And we always do a survey at the end of all of our trainings. And you can really tell who took in that information and who stopped listening at the mutual agreements. Um, You know, based on that, and we do discuss the feedback at length, we really talk about is there something in here that we need to take and change our behavior? Or is this a result of 
someone's learning history that's hearing a message that isn't quite ready for that message. So we've done a lot of trainings where the directors make them optional. Um, So usually what I tell the director is, well, just so you know, the people who are coming to an optional training are probably the people that don't really necessarily need to hear our message. Um, And if that's the case, then we kind of shape that training around how each of these individuals, while also the fact that you walked in this room is not enough. So we're not going to necessarily praise you for that because you chose to be here. You know, we appreciate that you are here and we're going to recognize that, but we're also going to recognize that there is nowhere to stop. Um, There is no PhD in social justice there. It's a continuous, um, you're continuously learning. And we talked that we are too, that we are constantly learning from people of color, going to their trainings, recommending those, sending them over to our other colleagues. We have someone else that we work really closely with who um, is a black cis male that owns a his own consulting business. We do a lot of referrals that way. We consult with that individual. Um, you know, so we look at those kinds of pieces too about making sure that are we qualified to take on this training, this consultation? And what about each of our backgrounds would make us an ideal person to take this on versus is there someone else that this would be a better space, a better person to take on? Um, So there is a lot of that work done prior to us actually going into the training. And we pay for that too. We make sure that we're, if we're consulting for like with, for someone's labor with the intention to possibly move forward with a paid um, gig, uh, for lack of a better word, we're making sure that we're paying that consultation fee and being transparent on on uh, what that information is going to be used for. Um, and more to your original question, we also recognize there is a difference between tokenism and representation. And there are far too many white DEI consultants that do not realize that, mm-hmm. where they feel as if, okay, as long as I have a black person in the space that I'm partnering with. I'm good. Like I've checked that box and that is absolutely not the case, right? It's like the difference between inclusion and diversity. (laughs) And I do think I want to interject there because um, within our, our, our little ADA field or whatever, that's the problem. Mm-hmm. There is tokenism and then there's representation and effective and quality representation at that. There was recently um, a conference and somebody, as much as they attempted to have BIPOC representation, in turn, they made that person and those people feel so tokenized. Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about looking at this from a systems, and that's what I, I love what you said, Gabrielle, um, we look at this from a systems perspective. We're not here to just on a surface level performative, just to check off your diversity box and you did the DEI training. We're asking you to look at your policies. We're asking that you have HR here. I want to talk to HR before I talk to RBTs. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to talk to the leadership team before I get to in any mid-tier supervisor level. And so um you saw a lot of people asking for these types of consultation services, but weren't ready 
for these types of consultation services? Because you right. thought it was just going to be a little 45 minute PowerPoint about how we need to, you know, take everyone's perspective into account. And, you know, you should have diversity and blah, 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 blah. But I honestly like I, I hate that that word diversity has now turned into the the best thing that they could do. Because if you really were taking it from an equity lens, like you like you were stating, Gemma, and from an inclusionary lens, the diversity comes, right? It's like a cusp, you know? Like you do the equity, really the equity. Mm-hmm. That's really what it is. Mm-hmm. You do that inclusionary policy work, you know, a little bit, that diversity is going to come. Um, if you are over here asking why more BIPOC individuals aren't attending your conferences or aren't attending your trainings, well, you need to look at your system first. Mm-hmm. You know, although, you know, we, you know, at Baba, we have black in front of our name, right? But we, people come to us because we lead with an, an equity and inclusion lens first. Mm-hmm. Our very first moment is how can we uplift our marginalized individuals, not what's going to be the best for my business and what's going to be the best for show. Mm -hmm. And so when people are really asking for these DEI trainings and, oh, I want them to come and things like that, really sit and think, are you ready for that? Mm -hmm. Or are you going to be on some, oh, let me go watch this DEI training on Relias and, and call it a day? right? Or central reach, you know, whatever. Um, And more and more agencies and not even agencies, but organizations, like organizations, nonprofit organizations are for profit. Mm -hmm. That's right. And Gemma and I made this rubric specifically on we, well, we like to say Jedi. So justice, equity, diversity, inclusion, because, you know, the the DEI has become so, it's so overused now, right? Like it's like this, like you were saying, it's just this constant push towards something that we're, that really at a systems level isn't being addressed. Um, and we've created, we developed this rubric that goes into really asking those bigger questions and you know, my work as a behavior analyst, looking at things from a measurable perspective in terms of, well, how often and who is and where did this come from? Um, And one of the big pieces that we have in there is you, you know, score yourself and you get different points if you're doing certain things. And you get zero points on this rubric if you are doing a DEI training from someone within your own company. Um, This should be DEI is that should be something that you are contracting out on a yearly base at a minimum. I mean, take a look at the rubric. There's different suggestions here, but um, like at a minimum, if you're doing everything else, it should be at a minimum from somewhere else that you're contracting in, because let's look at it as a behavior analyst. We talk about multiple relationships. We talk about dual relationships. There is a reason why you cannot be a BCBA cannot supervise someone who is above them in a company. So why would you be asking the people within your agency to create these DEI trainings to school you on something that you should be paying for elsewhere? And to expect for them to feel comfortable to tell you about your ass, because that's what it is. You know, right. if you're going to ask a BCBA or RBT to, to put on a training, they're going to put on a training 
that either is going to be surface level because they're scared to really go deep or they're scared to really go deep because they're going to be like, oh, I'm fired. Like, or, you know, are they really going to believe me that this is mine and other people's experiences and validate those? Right. You know, and it's also going to be 100% clinical too, in what they're going to be discussing. Um, It's going to be very third person. It's going to be very focused on what we need to be doing for our clients, for our families, for the people we serve. Few of it's going to be focused on are we unpacking our own shit and our own implicit bias and examining that piece. And I guarantee you don't have your HR department in those trainings. So really, what are we doing here? Well, you're ensuring that it's not a safe space. I mean, a perfect example, um, I I request that I get to send a, um, a survey out to everyone in that company because I want feedback about what your perspectives are on DEI because... I get um, like, here's one example of a story where I got, it was, I'm a black woman. Um, I was in, I interviewed for this job. Um, It, it felt like a long time passed before they finally called me and offered the job. I came in, I have access to the whole system. I happened to come upon, um, you know, my, the interview file for my position. I saw that uh, I was, the first candidate ranked highest on all the scores, but I also saw they offered it to a white woman first and she turned it down and now I have the job. So this is like a person is, has this job, found that out, is now in the job and is sitting with this. So I need to know that as the outside consultant so that I can address it in a safe way for that person, but address it, which is why are you tallying and ranking candidates if you were not going to use that data. And I think, you know, we, I hear that, that type of story all the time. I also teach for a local university um, and I'm currently teaching in their um, BC ABA foundations class or ethics class. And so um, one of the things, one of the students said was I applied for this, like, you know, managerial supervisory like between the tech role and your consulting role like multiple times I was overqualified and it took me five times to apply Mm -hmm. and she kept seeing white women get this position for less experience each and every time and you say oh you're gonna get it next time or, oh, still try, still still apply, still apply. And I think that's the, really, really the big difference between like Gen Z and, the, and um, millennials. We're only going to try once. You got one time. <laughs> and Gen Z, they don't even give you an opportunity. <laughs> They're like, just like, no, nope, we're done, you know? Um, and so to keep encouraging your BIPOC individuals to still apply for that position and to still work for your company when you've made this blatant stance and and missed opportunity, but you want them to feel comfortable. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's really, Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. Or or we're a diverse organization. Yeah, but every one of your hourly employees are Black and everyone who sits in your C-suite, which is what we call essentially the highest level administration or um, are all white. 
are all male or are all over the age of 50. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And, you know, you talk about, um, and maybe you guys talk about this in your consultations, but pipeline programs, mm-hmm. right? Um, those are really good ways to ensure that, yeah, we've made a mistake right now, but those people are in these positions right now. We're not going to fire someone. That would be reverse racism and all mm-hmm. of that. But um, how are you ensuring moving forward that you have that representation, that inclusion and that equity? And that's one of the things um, Learn Behavioral presented at the BABA conference on was their pipeline program from RBTs to BCBAs, right? We know the BACB's data that RBTs, Black RBTs make up 11%, but on the BCBA and BCBAD side, like six percent half that but we we got the hourly jobs and people are taking that and they're like look we have a diverse company we have you know 30 percent black individuals well my next question is always how many of them are hourly employees right Mm -hmm. who's it what's your demographic of the leadership role and then we can get into pay equity and that's a whole nother conversation Uh you know so i really love that you guys are getting to your nitty-gritty work Um, And on your website, you offer like just general DEI trainings, but you also offer your consultations. And so even if companies aren't ready, right, Mm -hmm. for this deep dive work, you guys are offering like, well, there's three people. I know there's three people who are. And let's start there. And then let's spread this across, um, you know, all all settings and individuals. And And it's like, that's the, I think, a big piece of kind of my behavior analytic side of things is like, let's look at this from the behavior perspective of where Gemma's like, yeah, give me your policies, give me your procedures. Let's look at what you have and all of that. And it's like, if we're only talking to your hourly employees, because something happened that it seems like you don't want to tell us, but I can kind of tell something's happened. So you're calling us in for that. Um, but we're not going to be looking at your policies, your procedures, and you're just going to turn the Zoom link on and leave so we can talk to everyone else is not going to do much. If your value is this, let's like be clear and transparent. What are your values? What's your goal here? Is it, I don't want to get sued. Is it that I need to do this because I might get sued? Is it because I saw something that was problematic with this particular employee? So I'm going to do like a broad thing for everyone. But you're also, we need to talk about white supremacy culture in this internalized sense that you are above that or you are beyond that. Um, And there's a big piece that Gemma and I do is when we talk about white people and white culture and white socialization, we don't put ourselves separate from that because we are 100% that. This is how we, you know, there's a learning history of socialization and privileges that come in. So it's really important that we make sure that we're not doing an other white people thing. Um, And you can't let this any sense of an ego come in where you start to separate yourself from that. So that I think is is super important. I also want to answer, I think the one of the questions that was asked before by Tana about how do you kind of address this in the sense of how do you look at it if a, a Black person says to you, why are you doing this work and what makes you think you can, right? I think that was the question that was asked before. So, um, and I think it's a really important question. I think it's it's one that definitely needs to be asked and one that needs to be addressed. 
Um, And I think that the biggest piece that Gemma and I do when it comes to that and it comes to this work is that we are very mindful of the fact that I don't think anyone's actually ever said that to us, to be honest, because one, there's this power differential. Um, I think that we and Gemma and I are constantly honest about the fact that it's not being said, but it's being thought. Um, And few, I think, Black people are going to be willing to say that to us in the kinds of trainings that we're doing in front of the people that we are. But it's on the brain because it should be, because it is a question that's being asked. So what we do first is we always tact it. We try and answer it for people before the question's asked. And really, it's never actually been asked. And we we really look at making sure that we are tacting our privilege, that we are talking about what that is and what that means. Um, you know, and it, here's the thing about this talk is cheap kind of thing is we can say all these things. But ultimately, it comes down to where the work falls um, and whether or not the impact is there. And I feel like there was this one this one training that we did do where there were there were several black colleagues in the room, very quiet for most of the training. It was a situation of Zoom was on and someone didn't realize their mic was muted um, and was not muted. Yeah, that's what I'm. And it was. People talk to the other people in their house, in their room, and did not know that their mic was not muted. And so the entire department heard the inner thoughts of this person and what they thought of DEI. And Gemma kind of, we let it go for a little while because we, and actually the director was private messaging me, please mute her, please mute her. And I was ignoring it because you know what? There is a... There's a come to Jesus moment that needs to happen. There's, and Gemma kind of muted it just at the last second before a really awful word we thought was going to be said was said. Um, And, you know, muted it there. And then just kind of said, actually, you know, you're not said the name of the person. You're not muted. So we're in this space where really harmful messages were said. And the person muted themselves and turned the video off immediately. Um, and I said, please turn your video back on, um, you know, and I we were about to go on with our training. So I texted Gemma on the phone and I was like, I'm going to address this. But after slide 15 or whatever, I was like, I think we need some basic information on certain things before we address this. And for those 15 slides, it was a lot of participation from other white people. There were, you know. Black colleagues turn their cameras off. We're very silent. And I'm like, I don't blame them because I was essentially racially assaulted um, by what was said by my colleague. And so we get to this slide and I said, now I'm going to pause and we're going to go back and we're going to address what happened and we're going to call it what it is and be very direct. And it was really interesting. After that moment, there was this complete shift of white people started realizing this isn't my space to be taking over and talking. And we actually started getting participation from the black colleagues on the training. Um, And it was this. And I think for me, that was one of the the moments that kind of taught me as a DEI consultant too, is that ultimately it really comes down to whether or not you are really using your power in the way that you can in order to benefit them. 
And that's really what it is, is centering it back there and asking yourself, are we doing that? And I think that this was, and I remember at the end of that training, the director asked, has that ever happened before? And I said, has an employee ever not been muted and said a bunch of racist shit? No, that's never happened in one of our trainings before. Um, But it's definitely something I'm going to reference down the road because it offered a really good opportunity to talk about, listen, this is why we're here. And I guarantee you that every Black person on this training is sick of talking about DEI. The difference is it's life or death for them. And for you, it's an inconvenient hour. So, and- Ultimately, I mean, I don't know if that really answers the question or not, but that was something that kind of pops into my head often. It's you guys doing the work that really answers that question, you know, and when things pop up, you know, you didn't just like bypass that entire situation and pretend like that didn't just happen 15 slides ago and tapping it and saying, this is why you guys are here. This is not just to check off a box because George Floyd got murdered and now your company is being held accountable. This is internally why your employees feel unsafe because mm-hmm. you get to go home and this is how you really think. Mm-hmm. On a DEI training that your company paid for, for you to attend and you're at home just chatting it up with whoever is in the background, mm-hmm. like, F this, this is some democratic. Yep. I <laughs> mean, yeah, you're basically, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know? 100%. Mm-hmm. And it's, that's, that's really what it does come down to too. And I think that that was the turning point in that training was that moment. And one of the things that I did tact then when I talked about, listen, it happened 15 slides ago. I, opted not to say to address it right then because I felt like we needed some basic information before we got here. Um, You know, but what I really want the white people in the room to think about is when this happens, it's usually shocking. You don't expect it. You don't know what to say or what to do, but it is not too late to go back. You can always say, Listen, this happened in the moment I was totally shocked and didn't know what to say, but I'm going to address it now. And that makes a difference. Like there there's this understanding that the sense of urgency is part of white supremacy culture. There is definitely a timeline in which things need to be addressed. And had we let the training end and not addressed it, we would have missed the timeline. But it's this remembering that you can go back and address it. And you can, you know, that this is something that you think about with your colleagues in that moment, you hold them, you hold, it was all the slides we went through is what gives you power, what gives you privilege, right? We had like the privilege wheel that we show people and say that you can look around and decide based on the identities at hand in this room, you're, if you're the one with the most power and privilege, it is your responsibility to say something. We do get a lot of questions from Black colleagues that are like, how do I say this in a way that doesn't make this white person mad or this white person offended? And I'm like, first of all, I'm not going to tell a Black person or anyone with a marginalized identity how to educate other people about their oppression. In any way that you want to do that, you need to, you can do it in that sense. 
But the message that I'm going to send to you is that there is really no palatable way that you can tell a racist they are being racist and them not get mad about that. But what I will say in this moment, while we have everyone on this conference call, everyone on this Zoom call is listen to what your black colleague just said. Now, imagine if you were the person that could address that. Imagine if you could be the one that would say that for this person, because ultimately, you know, and we've worked with, um, we did work with a lot of um, a rape crisis coalition. Um, So it was like every rape crisis center in in a state. Um, We did this mass training for them. And, you know, there was a social worker who responds to things in the middle of the night, sexual assaults, a black man who he said that I'm responding to a sexual assault and the police officer is asking me what I think about Black Lives Matter. What do I do? What do I say in the middle of this podunk southern town in the middle of the night? How do I respond to that in a way that's not going to piss this person off? And I was like, now imagine if you were a white person standing there and you're his colleague and how you could address it. Because ultimately, you're probably not worried about getting shot by that police officer. Are not you? at all. <laughs> not at all. Well, I just I love everything that you guys have going on and um, love everything that you guys have done. You guys have done so many things between the crisis management centers and the rubrics and the, um, just the trainings in general. Um, what is Twice Consulting have next? Like, what are you guys want to get into next or what do you guys want to go? I know Gemma, you said, I want to be doing this full time. So, you know, let us know what you need. Um, But what do you guys have coming up next for everyone? So I think the, one of the big goals is to be able to do consulting mentorship kind of at a a more full-time level. So that's definitely one of the pieces. Um, We're launching, it's kind of my sister business. It's going to be TABS, Twice Affirming Behavioral Services. Um, Okay, I like it. Specifically for autistic and transgender youth, um, but is going to be international. So it's going to be with clients kind of all over the country, all over, all over the, the world. You know, as long as there's telehealth and internet access, um, that's going to be a piece that we're bringing in. And I mean, Gemma has done a lot of consulting for me when I, you know, worked in West Africa. She did a lot of work on um, kind of helping support understanding HIV and how um, treatments with that can affect the autistic brain and a lot of different pieces and aspects. So Gemma's going to be called in quite a bit to work with her public health side and a systems level side. It's going to be a lot of clients that from a systemic level are, are very, very oppressed because there's no supports or affirming um, services outside of that. So that's another piece that's coming down the pipe that we're pretty excited about. And hopefully that'll bring in some more full-time TCS stuff. So that's tabs. Um, And I keep telling Gemma that I'd love to see a twice as fit at some point. Um, So like more work in the area of health and fitness and wellness. Um, I would love to hear more just about the crossover between public health and how, you know, utilizing ABA can can improve on that. So Gemma, we might have to have you back on the show. 
Yeah. Um, talk about all public public health. I'm yeah. Really interested. Yes, I'll nerd out on it. So many. Okay, <laughs> so many things to unpack um, and talk about, mm-hmm. especially with exercise prescription and adherence and um, health at every size and unpacking. Um, you know, why BMI is garbage. And I was just going to say, can we just get rid of the BMI? Because my BMI says that I'm obese. Yes. Because it's it's racist and it's gendered and rooted in white supremacy Mm -hmm. and um, an appearance ideal that is, you know, white centered. That was the worst thing growing up. Because I think that came out right when I was in elementary school. And when I tell you it caused, which I don't think was their intention, but it caused so many eating disorders in my community and so many body shaming situations. This is, you know, and then social media came right after that with MySpace, Uh you know, Um, and Facebook had just came out. So I I can't believe I'm saying that because I feel so old (laughs) saying that, but um. Yeah, I just, I have so many thoughts about that. And it really ruined, like, I grew up in a all white community as a black, you know, child. So there's just so much. And the way my body was and BMI and did we have a black family doctor? Yeah, that was a thing. Right. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So, so much of that could be, that's why we need, I want to twice as fit. Yeah, do that, Gemma. If you need any affirming situations to happen, there we go. Just want to affirm that and validate that idea. (laughs) Let's talk about decolonizing fitness, decolonizing nutrition. Nutrition. Yeah. I was just, and and we'll wrap up after this, but I was just watching um, High on the Hog on Netflix. It's a, um, I'm a, I, I love documentaries, particularly like food documentaries. <laughs> and so just how food connects with just our history. But um, watch High on the Hog. It talks about how um, slavery it, like influenced the food, especially in North and South Carolina. Um, and then also uh, Food of a Nation on Hulu is really good too. So just okay. Like- Um, but thank you guys so much Gabrielle and Gemma for coming on the show today Um, if anybody wants to get in contact with you where should they where should they hit you guys up at so they can go to our website which is www.twiceconsultingservices.com and they can also email us at twiceconsultingservices at gmail.com awesome and we'll make sure we put both of those things in the show notes and any other social media or things that you guys want everyone to know, we'll make sure to put those in there. So thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thanks.